Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 11 of Say Who, Say Pod, hosted by myself, Christian Capel, alongside Danny O'Neill. Hey, Danny, do you remember when um, we, a few episodes ago on this podcast, discussed potential replacements for Jimmy Lake during the coaching search? And there was Kalen DeBoer, obviously, and there was Dave Aranda, there was Matt Campbell, and there was a fourth coach who Washington was reported to have been vetting. Do you Do you remember who that was? I could take a stab at it, but I don't know if he would inject enough enthusiasm. Ooh. There was there was there was a viral campaign, I believe. <laughs> am I am I getting close? Am I thinking of the right guy? Do you think Washington regrets not hiring Brian Harson? No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I don't know what to make. So, as a rule, I generally don't feel bad when college coaches get caught up in sort of messy booster situations because the college coach is the one who benefits most from that. But when you see like what's happening at Auburn, like you realize what a weird, strange, I, I can't make sense of what's going on. And and now they're not going to fire him. I have that. Am I most updated? Correct. Like he's, Correct. he's not getting fired, but he's going to now have to go recruit with everybody in the conference knowing he almost just got fired and players are leaving because they're mad about it, but that's not that uncommon. He's been there one year. It's not like he inherited a great situation. It just, it, it seems like that's relatively unfair. Like why did, why are you keeping him? I, I don't, I don't understand at this point what his path to success is. It's going to be and obviously two completely different, situations um but it's going to be what what it would have been like for jimmy lake if if the sideline yes. thing doesn't happen and washington keeps him around you know every every rival you're recruiting against is going to be saying you're going to go to auburn really Oof. yeah except for the most part it seemed like jimmy's players liked him right like, yeah i i well <laughs> i i think there was there were definitely some divisions i don't think oh, it's really? i don't think it's anywhere near um you know, you the Harson level, like yeah, where player, you're using... yeah, yeah, players coming out saying Brian Harson treats us like dogs. Yeah, that's that's generally not a good sign. That's generally generally pretty uh, a, a sign that there are some serious morale problems. Uh, you don't, yeah, you. It's, it's not. It's not though, good because because that's going to happen though, right? When a guy takes over a job, because Jimmy Jimmy like took over a job, but he'd been here before, so you're not going to have that. A new coach comes in, and you're inevitably going to have some attrition. Oh, yeah. And there, there's a right or a wrong way to do it, a wrong way being how Todd Graham apparently went about things in, in Hawaii. But I I see what's happening at Auburn as fairly predictable given the where, where, that, where that program was when Harson was hired and what was going to have to happen for them to like I don't think anything's happened on the field or with players where you would say like oh ho, 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 there are some serious signs that this is just not going to work out other than boosters are kind of flipping out yeah and that's it's always a risk when you you take someone who has no experience in the south to go work in the SEC I think it's, it's true I think it's totally uh History has shown that it can totally work out the other way around, you know, coming from other parts of the country to come coach out west. Um, but well, there was that one guy that mounted a shark, right? Well, that wasn't that not wasn't that not true 
Wait, wasn't it? Wasn't it not actually him? It just looked oh, really? exactly like him. Yeah, was it? I, I feel like the updated story was that it was actually like the Jimmy John's CEO or <laughs> no something. No, the Jimmy John's CEO was responsible for something entirely different, right? This is a vice. So Jim, this is a vice headline Ma- from May yeah. 2017. Did the founder of Jimmy John's sandwiches get naked and hump a dead shark? And it is the <laughs> the the uh, infamous. Perhaps Jim McElwain photo. <laughs> he vehemently denied that, which I I I I want to side with him on that. Take his word. I'd feel like wouldn't that suck if someone who looked exactly like you was photographed doing something totally ridiculous, and then you had to like your own you know your only recourse is to deny it, which is true, and then nobody believes you like that. Yeah, would... but man, the problem is is that when you get yourself in the position where it is uh, conceivable that you did do that like where it's not on its face absurd you're probably you're probably in in a in a significant in a significant hole already to begin with if that's the question that's being asked but yeah yeah that would you would you would feel that like the fates have lined up against me in such a way that i you can't even blame me for this one (laughs) yeah because he came did he come from colorado state that was where he'd been before before he went to florida yes i should add too. jimmy johns also denied this so i I, it it has not been confirmed on the record who this this uh shark person we've got an anonymous an anonymous shark humper running around on the loose the worst kind yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's it, it is. That's part of the reason I wonder about about Brian Kelly going down to LSU. I I mean, I I sincerely wonder how exactly that's going to wear. Um, and and I know that Mike Varell was very adamant that uh, Brian Kelly's issues have never been with how he deals with the press. It's a different environment down there. It's Saban, Nick Saban, when he went from Michigan State to LSU, like Saban was your gruff. He's kind of like. But it's not like how he is now because he's got a sense of humor now and he's got a personality that you see in glimpses. But when he first went down to LSU, there was basically like, yeah, you got to handle this a little bit different. You can't do the stiff upper lip. I'm not telling you anything that you do at Michigan State. Like you you do need these guys on your side a little bit when it comes to the the media coverage. And I I think that's generally true in the South in a way that it's not in other areas. I assume you've seen the the videos of Brian Kelly dancing with the recruits. Is that where he was doing the John Travolta like slide, like like the 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 over the sliding eye. his fingers across his eyes? Yeah, it's yeah. cringy. I mean, he's gonna. You can make that stuff work. You have to win. Like it doesn't when you when you do goofy stuff like that and you don't win, it 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 becomes the punchline and kind of hangs. It's it, I don't think it's unique in that way. I just. When he put on the accent, like, <laughs> like, you're just like, "Come on, man!" And hey, maybe he is. It appears that he's he's a pretty he's a pretty good coach. I I don't see that as a cultural fit at all. I give him some respect for he did laugh at himself about that a little bit. It um, did. It it does seem like he's trying to, but it also seems like somebody who th- knows that he has to try to pretend it's cool. Like he's trying to pretend he's in on the joke, but he's still the guy that's capable. I would not be up there dancing with recruits like he is. One of my it's one of my favorite things about you know the, the power dynamic in college football is so messed up between coaches and players, right? Coaches, I mean, Brian Kelly's making what eight eight and a half million dollars. No matter how much you pay these coaches and how generational their wealth becomes they still have to debase themselves to 16 and 17 year old football players in order to succeed at their job 
and watch. So like, I, I feel like that's just a little bit of a, a way to even the playing field a little bit, just in the tiniest balances, just in the tiniest, tiniest little, like most insignificant way is like, ha- like, yeah, you want to, you want to make eight, $9 million to coach college football. Well, every now and then you got to dance like a, like a, uh, <laughs> Brian Kelly <laughs> with, I'd, with a recruit I'd, I'd that. in slow motion. You know what though? Like, and um, Ari Wasserman and Antonio Morales had a, a story on the Athletic about how important photo shoots have become, and like how it's like if you're not doing it right, you can like kind of forget about signing the kids you want, um, which is just really? which is crazy. But it just so the, shows so how important sh- all this like peripheral stuff really is. Like when you go on your visit, man, you want it to feel like they're doing everything and treating you like a star. And so if that means these super overproduced, you know. 10 second clips of in slow motion of you like dancing with the coach to some song as part of the experience. Then uh, they didn't get that kid though. The last one, Brian Kelly. Danced right, with. I saw that. I saw that he didn't, he didn't end up going there, which I, I mean, at least it's not, if he had ended up going there game over, right. That becomes the, that becomes the clincher that they, that they always do. It's if it's not one thing, it's going to be another, like there is always this element of sucking up to, recruits that you have to do and maybe maybe that's the healthiest way to look at it it's the checks and balances yes you have all this power once i get there but you still have to go in and beg people to come to your school and put the put the best foot forward uh when you're when you're sucking up to them it's that's a weird part and i it i wonder if that's one of the reasons because people have always assumed that when an nfl coach goes to college that they're going to tear it up right and some of that's because of what happened with pete carroll but that's by and large, like we talk a lot about the difficulty that college coaches have when they get to the NFL, Urban Meyer being, the, but NFL coaches don't tend to thrive when they go to college either. Lovey Smith just got another head coaching job and he did not exactly set the world on fire when he was at Illinois. No, like, it doesn't. It's not, it's not one of those things. And I've always wondered if that's a huge part of it is that NFL coaches are not in any way trained or geared toward flattering younger players like that that's it is so far outside their mindset if anything they are geared toward breaking down the egos of younger players of sort of you don't know anything yet from what you did before whereas the college coach has to be like we're going to give you the platform to accentuate your talent it's not even so much we're going to develop you into it you're we're the right place for you to come show your stuff do you remember when jim harbaugh climbed the tree at a an in home visit to get a kid. Do you remember that story? No, I I rem, I've I no, I don't remember him climbing a tree. Uh, David Long was the the recruit's name, and I think he plays for the Rams now. Yeah, there is a David Long on the Rams. Yeah, Harbaugh climbed a tree. Yeah, so I think it was it was down to Michigan and Washington for him. Uh-huh. Um, he's a California guy, if I remember yeah. right. Yeah, he's from Pasadena. Yeah. Um, Harbaugh was in home with him, I think, the day before. Uh-huh. And I've, I'll just... Something got... St- either got yeah, it was stuck... A, it was his sister's, his sister's ball. Yeah, so a ball got stuck, stuck in a tree, and he says, oh, this, you know, I'll, sh- I'll show you how far I'll go to, like, get, get you to sign and come to Michigan. I'll, I'll climb the tree and get the ball. Blows up. It's headline everywhere. It gets aggregated all over the place. And then Washington goes in the next day for their in-home visit, and it's just 
you know, totally flat, no energy. It's like it's they they went into that just knowing like, oh, okay, it's over. Jim Harbaugh climbed the tree. The kids going to Michigan. So wait, they didn't. We didn't have any tree climbers on the UW staff. I and nobody's nobody's as kooky as Jim Harbaugh. Come on, was a bridge That's too a, far? I believe. Really? So here's the oh. thing, though. Here's the thing. Chris Peterson would cut loose a little bit on in home visits, but the second the phones came out and the and the camera was on, he was done. Uh, so you remember Camilo Eifler was a linebacker uh-huh. recruit. I yeah, I want to say in the same class as David Long. Actually, I remember him saying that uh, Chris Peterson got like hopped on his skateboard and was like riding his skateboard on his visit, and he took out his phone to take video. And as soon as he took out his phone, he t- Peterson hopped off and was like, "No, no, 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 we're not doing that." Really? Yeah. So is Chris? He just didn't want that side of his personality out there. I think he just he viewed the recruiting process and everything as like so um everything that they did that he wanted it to be as private as possible. He wanted it like as little information out there about how they recruited as possible. And I also just think he like in his mind, I'm here on this visit. I'm all in on this moment right now. I'm yeah. present. I'm here. I don't want this to turn into look at this thing Chris Peterson did. Like we're we're here to try to convince you to come play football for our program. It's not about me as the head coach. I don't, you know, I just I just think he didn't want any publicity around any of that at all. Um, and if he could have, that's really interesting. It's respectable, right? In this way of, and and I will say that it's consistent with the way that they did not cast a wide net. Like that's their their mo in recruiting was not. We're going to offer 400 kids and, and get the, the 20 best. Uh, it was, we're going to focus on 60 to 80 guys that we really think fit what, what we do and that we can break. Those are the kind of kids that thrive in our program. And we're going to, by doing that and being more selective, we're going to get a higher percentage of the guys that we really want. And that idea of we're not going to make a big production out of it, it's not going to be a public showcase, kind of fits with that. It does... I would wonder if if we're really in a, an environment where the photo shoot is a huge part of what influences recruits, which I don't doubt that's a reality. That that might have been sort of clinging to a twenty two caliber approach in a three fifty seven magnum world. They still, I mean, they, he he got on board with all that. Um, yeah, and you know they're they're all set up to to do that at, at Washington too. They don't. You know, I do wonder if the day might come where they try to expand it out a little bit. I think for the most part they do it like in a, you know, in a studio with a backdrop and stuff um, you know, with the with the setting that they have and being right on the water and all that kind of thing. I wonder if they might uh, they might expand their horizons a little. I think like from reading it was it was one of those stories, the, the one that that our guys did last week, I think it was one of those stories that reading it like you're simultaneously just like shaking your head like man is this is this really what recruiting has become this is so silly but it's all, it was also really interesting because really all it comes down to is recruits want to feel like you are doing the most right that like i'm gonna i'm coming up here on this visit i've got all these other coaches and all these other schools talking to me and if you know four of the places i visit all have like their photo shoot operation more or less running on the same level and one of them doesn't and it's clear that it's just not that important well, I'm going to feel like I'm not as important to you. Yeah, I'm going to feel like you're not taking this as seriously as Oklahoma State, where they bring out a horse, and I'm, you know, I'm going to sit on horseback and and get my picture taken and everything. Like, you know, you, you got it. It's it, it's keeping up with the times. 
<laughs> get the horses out involved. What's DeBoer like? What what's what what sense have you gotten from how how his recruiting approach, how how it sort of reflects like or, or is different from from how Peterson and to an extent Jimmy Lake did. I mean they're different coaches, but there are some similar templates. I think it's going to be really similar to Chris Peterson's approach. Um, uh-huh. Maybe not in the sense that they're going to be at the bottom of the Power Five every year in total offers. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, DeBoer said I asked him that that question specifically in December and he said that you know they they'd want their offer to mean something he didn't he sounded like he's not real into the idea of just throwing out an offer and maybe it's committable maybe it's not um you know Courtney Morgan their director of player personnel who I talked to uh last week no earlier this week for a story um you know they that was a good story they're all thank you they're all kind of on the same page that like they want an offer to be tied to a relationship um, but there is a reality there that like if you're trying to go after a kid who's already got 10 offers and you've talked to him twice, he's kind of going to get to thinking like, OK, you can offer or what? Because I got 10 already and like, well, what, I'm just I'm just going to keep talking to you guys without any promise of a scholarship offer. Why would I do that? You know, so I think they they're willing to play the game a little bit that way. It's It was interesting listening to, to Courtney Morgan talk about the the type of prospect that they get really excited about. And it's kind of at this intersection of we can get this guy and wow, watch his film. He's a really good football player. And it's, you know, it's not like they're not at, they're not intrigued by the six, three corner or the six, five, 270 pound defensive tackle. But I think they know, and Courtney Morgan in particular, you know, having, having come from, from Los Angeles and having a lot of ties down there, you know they they know how many players there are in California and they can't all go to USC and UCLA and so you get past that top tier and into the you know he he mentioned Keyshawn Bieria and Sidney Jones, Jadon Mickens, Marvin Hall and you know I you could you could go down the list Ben Burkirvan is another one where they're in California they don't have offers from the local schools they might have a couple power five offers, but if Washington comes through with an offer, it's probably going to be the most high profile one they have. They're not, um, you know, in the, the top percentile of, of size and length at their position, but they do have some plus traits. And when you watch the film, they're just really good football players. Is he a safety? Is he a linebacker? Well, I don't know, but he can play, you know? So you can't build a whole class with those guys every year. But Chris Peterson's staff was really good at early identification of, of some of those guys and like getting on them and getting them wrapped up before they even had a chance to blow up into the type of prospect that's got 15 offers and is, you know, skyrocketing through the rankings and stuff. And already in this 2023 class, there's a couple names that they've offered um, where you know I you turn on their huddle and if you if you didn't say where they played or what their name was or what their ranking was. Like, I'd believe I'm watching like a top 300 guy and you look and, Oh, they've got Washington or like this linebacker in California, Jordan Whitney, you know, he's got four offers and he, he just looks like a dude. So that, that's the, that's the type of player that like seems to get them really excited. You know, obviously they know that they've got to go after the guys who are highly touted. There's a ton of guys in 2023 in Washington that are going to be really high priorities for them who have offers from all over the country. And, and everybody knows about those guys, but you can tell that they um, they're very big on, on kind of finding the, the hidden gems who might lack some measurables, but can really, really play. How much did you buy into? Cause there was a lot of criticism of Jimmy Lake and this was even before 
the incident on the sideline or the week with Oregon that he he wasn't he wasn't recruiting the state like he that he'd lost too many of the top tier recruits or hadn't gotten any of them uh how how much did you did you think recruiting was going to be a problem for Jimmy Lake say say he doesn't say he doesn't say anything about about academically pedigree or whatever and he doesn't he doesn't smack a, a player on the forehead on his helmet and he, and he's back how big an issue was his recruiting in the state specifically going to be I think it was going to be a major issue I, with that said I don't know how much they could have done to get JT yeah. Tuimalo out and Emeka Egbuka yeah. I mean, yeah. you, you're a you're an elite, you know, top five national recruit, and Ohio State wants you to come play receiver, and yeah. Ohio State wants you to come play in the D line. Why would you go to Washington? You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's Kalen DeBoer's job to make it so that that's not such a a reasonable question to ask, right? I mean, you you want to get you want to get the in state school to the point where. Hey, if I if I go here, I can really have an impact in winning conference championships, and I can get to the college football playoff from here. And because there's no question, I mean, you just look at the numbers. There's no question you can get to the NFL from Washington. I think I think yes. that nowadays you can get to the NFL if you're that kind of talent. You can get to the NFL from anywhere, or at least you should believe that you can. Um, but Washington, in particular, you know, they've had more players in the NFL than any Pac-12 school. You know, so like it, I think the NFL piece. Um, they have the data to support that. Uh, there's, there's no, I don't think there's anybody at, at any position that should feel like, you know, you need to leave town for that reason specifically. But the fact is, if you want to compete for a college football playoff or a college football, uh, national championship, you shouldn't be playing in the PAC 12. I mean, that's just, it, that's just how it is at present. So I don't, I don't, I don't fault Jimmy Lake necessarily for those two guys in particular. I think there were several other guys though, in state, who they could have prioritized and gotten a signature on pretty easily and just didn't and, and watch them go to other Pac-12 schools. I think that was going to be more the issue long-term. Yeah, because there's always that that reality of having players leave the state for national platforms, for lack of a better term, whether it is because they're competing for a national. I mean, when Washington's going to three straight Rose Bowls, you're still having guys that are leaving the state to go to Notre Dame. Like Demetrius Debose is still going from O'Day to Notre Dame, and Lake Dawson is still going to Notre. Like that—that's always happened. Like that's that, and and you're never. It's unrealistic to think as as much as they'll put a fence around the state. Like what what you don't want to do is consistently lose players within the Pac-12. Like that's that's probably the bigger criticism of of a coach is if you've got guys consistently that are choosing other Pac-12 programs ahead like you sh- when it comes to to the Pac-12 the University of Washington should get the majority of the top tier recruits from from the state compared to other Pac-12 teams but you're you're never going to be able to to headlock and, and this is I I try not to get into the what does it mean that this I wondered how much the Tristan Dunn he's the he's the safety right from Sumner yeah and he chooses Washington after he initially indicated he was going to Arizona State. The the initial is, and he's not as high profile as Buda Baker was, but that's kind of what happened with Buda when Chris Peterson came. Is that all of a sudden okay to revisit the revisit that decision and Buda Baker ends up coming to coming to Seattle? Is is there any is there any similarity between those two recruiting instances to read into the coaching change? 
Um, I I think it was just more about Washington finally coming with an offer. Oh, really? Because, <laughs> well, even look, they have liked Tristan Dunn going back to Chris Peterson and Chris yeah. Chris Peterson's recruiting staff. Like he, that's a guy who's been on their radar. You know, obviously the new staff came in and saw a big six four physical safety who could help them right away, and who you know, let's face it, anyone committed to Arizona State right now is is you know fair game, right? I mean, it, anybody's fair game all the time, but especially with with that program, I mean, you see someone who's committed to ASU, you got to feel like you've got a real good chance to get them if you if you come in and make them a priority. So, yeah, I think the comparison to Buda Baker that people would really like to make would be with Josh Connerly, but um, that that just feels like such a long shot. I don't know that there's any reason to to get your hopes up that that he's going to stay home, and that's another example, like. He's he's a guy where if Washington is at where it was during the the peak of the Chris Peterson era, they should they sh- should feel really good about their chances of keeping him home because he really is. I mean he's a he's a local guy, he's a Seattle guy. He's he's been you know very loyal to his hometown and to his school. But the hometown school is four and eight, and every school in the country wants you. You know what are, what are you going to do? Well, I want him blocked for Sam Heward. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, like, yeah, what you're saying is absolutely. And that's that's one of the reasons that it's hard for me to get as fixated on recruiting because I know it's I know the importance. I understand. But I don't want to be invested in a 17 or 18 year old kid making a decision for his future and have my opinion of it impacted whether or not he's going to my school. Like I, 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 I want Josh Connolly. I want Josh Connolly to have an awesome career and I want his college experience, wherever that is to be as awesome as mine was. And I don't want it. And so it, it's one of, it's one of the real struggles that I have as, as a college football fan following recruiting, because you know, the importance. And I also know how ridiculous it is to get wound up or, or tied into feeling any anything other than enthusiasm when when a kid says hey i want to go play football at so-and-so school like even if it is the negligible diploma mill located in eugene like i want to still be i want to still be excited for that kid yeah it's it's really it's really weird when adults get mad at children for the college decisions they make like it's just it's just so strange and like i feel like if you say that you get labeled as like not caring enough about recruiting or whatever. Oh, okay, I'll, I'll say that it's absurd. Yes, and I actually I had an experience with one jackass that's on Twitter, and it was a couple weeks ago. Somebody there was a it was a photographer. She sent out it was a gorgeous picture of a sunset. You guys have had incredible sunsets recently, and it was kind of um, in the South Lake Union area, like going across Mercer, and you could see the Space Needle. It's just a gorgeous picture of a sunset, and I ended up retweeting it, and. And this guy, who's like a Husky fan, he took the picture and then he he tinted it purple, like some some Photoshop thing, whatever. And the photographer was like, that's gross. I wish you wouldn't do that. <laughs> and and his response was like, you've now made an enemy for life. And uh, I'm going to purpleize every one of your photos. And like he went and did it to a couple of them. And you you kind of watch it and you're like, oh, what? who is this? I ended up saying something to him about like, that's an exceptionally lame approach. Like you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. She said she didn't like it. Just, just say, sorry, I didn't realize. And like, move on your way. He blocks me. He blocks her. But before that I'd looked at it and I was like, Oh, 
of course, this is the dude who's tweeting out things about Benetaki Arnold because 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 oh, Sam Jesus. Taimani has and, and we're like, of course it is. Of course it is, because a portion of the fan base of college football is like alt right. It's it's the alt right of sports fans, just deplorable, horrific trolls. And it. Yeah. It, so I, I don't have any. I don't I don't want to care about recruiting as much as they do, Christian. I do think there's a there's a a healthy balance between you know, like being really I not that not that I, I could muster this type of passion around it, but being really upset with the coaching staff of your favorite college football team for not signing the prospects they want the most without holding any ill will whatsoever toward the prospects themselves that, that's true that's that's sort of the that's the line that you're trying to walk right of i want the coaches to make this a destination so appealing that that they're able to not just meet but exceed the previous levels of success right like how do you keep that reasonable and focused on the coaching staff without it's terrible to focus on the kids decision i think i think most normal thinking people would agree with that Unless you're calling a player who transfers somewhere else Benetaki Arnold, then I just think you're probably irredeemable. Which, by um, by the way, you can't you you can't uh, believe that he wasn't that good. It's not that big of a loss. He he you know he underperformed, and also I'm really really mad at him for leaving. The whole thing. It it's, doesn't make any sense. No, it's gross. It, it's and look, that's coming from somebody who loves to take cheap shots at Oregon. But I, I, I wish him the, I wish him the best. Seriously, legitimately do. Like that's when a kid makes the decision about what they're best. But yeah, and and the double standard of he stinks and I'm mad. Like can't yeah. be both. Can't be both. But that how you focus on what the coaching staff is doing and how they're and keep that realistic and reasonable because it's not. It's not a reasonable expectation that they're going to sign every top player in the state. Like that's you are going to lose guys. Sometimes you're going to lose them because they want to go to Stanford, and and there's nothing you can do. And I I love the University of Washington. I think I got a great education there. There are going to be kids that choose to go to Stanford that there's nothing the University of Washington can or really should be able to do to change that. They're they're going to go to Stanford. It's kind of like the same. There was a there was a basketball player who went to UNC. Um, this is before Marvin Williams, Brian Morrison. He went to Lake Washington. People were like, well, the Huskies should have got him. I was like, dude, he got offered a scholarship by UNC. Like, by UNC. Like, no kid in this state has ever gone to UNC on a basketball scholarship. You're like, oh, Bender screwed up. It's like, what's he supposed to do? Yeah. Like, what? Wait, what? How are you? If that kid wants to go there, that's where he's going to go. Stanford especially, like... I. The fact that they're in a Power Five athletics conference and compete at a high level in sports, I think, obscures the fact that out here, an offer from Stanford is basically an offer from Harvard. You know, yeah, with good athletics. Yeah, so like you're choosing between Harvard in a power conference and everybody else. Yeah, and yeah. you know, like you said, the University of Washington certainly they have a lot to sell academically. They do well in the rankings. Blah blah blah. They're not Stanford, and nobody is. Nobody is Stanford. Richard Sherman decided to go to Stanford over USC when Pete Carroll had it rolling. When Pete Carroll had it absolutely rolling, and Richard Sherman said, 
no, I've got an opportunity to be the first athlete from my high school to go to Stanford. I'm going to do that. Like that's that's the reality. That's going to happen sometimes, and you're just going to have to say, "Oh, yeah, I I get it. That's I hope the kid does well." With that said, uh, I I sure seemed like Courtney Morgan has already a really strong grasp of what Washington's brand is and the kind of kids who are going to be worth their time to pursue outside the footprint. Um, but most importantly, you know, the, the, the kind of kids within their footprint who they are going to know not to waste their time on uh, because what Washington has is not necessarily what they're looking for. Eventually, I mean, the goal should be to get Washington into more and more of those conversations because I mean, when, when you say, you know, like I, I think one of the most interesting things he said was you have to understand where your brand fits in the marketplace. And mm-hmm. right now, Washington's brand does not fit in the marketplace of where can I go to, to compete for a national championship. So, you know, when you talk about kids you don't want to waste your time on, those, the, you know, the kids who are looking at Alabama, Georgia, yeah. um, you know, LSU, those type of schools are, are probably not going to be interested in what Washington has to offer because it's a completely different category of contender right now. So the goal should be to get yourself to a point where, Hey, you don't need to leave the West coast to compete for a national title. Cause look, Leo, look at us at Washington. We're winning nine, 10 games a year or whatever. So a lot of that is, is solved by winning. Um, but it, I think it's, uh, it's going to be beneficial that they seem to have a recruiting staff that is realistic about kind of where they stand. And, you know, that's, I, I realize this conversation can, can kind of, it seems like a little bit of a downer, like, Oh, why would you, of course you'd go to this school instead of Washington. Of course you go to this school instead of Washington. But I, I think that they, they understand that they do have a very specific experience to sell. They're very confident that if they can get prospects on campus, um, that they can, that they'll have a real good chance to close on them. And that's always, how uh, that was, you know, Chris Peterson's thing too, that the visit was a, a very powerful tool for them but there does seem to be a a sense of realism in that office combined with hey you're looking for really good football players they're confident that if they can win this year especially you know get it turned around right away that'll open doors that probably aren't available to them right now but um i don't think you're going to see them spending a ton of time chasing the type of guys who are going to end up in the sec or or you know who are pretty much dead set on on usc like out of out of of southern california like it's been for the last you know decades and decades well you you look at i'd be interested to hear sort of courtney morgan's belief on what what the brand is because washington when it's been its most successful over these past 30 years or so the the streaks like the, the sort of the things that you've seen is it's often it's often with a quarterback who is a little more mobile than 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 people would typically give you credit for, and maybe not necessarily. I mean, Billy Joe Hobart and Mark Brunel were both both really well regarded recruits, but I don't. I mean, Kerry Conklin was was every bit as much sort of a, a high profile player like Washington's Marcus Tuiasosopo. He was a really solid recruit. They have not. The reason that Washington has gone to Rose Bowls, when when you look at it in the past, it's not entirely distilled down to they went and got the best three players in the state each and every year from their recruiting and put a headlock on it. Or they went into, like, they developed significant relationships in, in specific other parts of the footprint of the, of the conference, had a very specific style of football that they played, and, and had 
had kind of an identity that flowed around it. They're, when they go to the national playoffs, like the, the game of the Peach Bowl against, against Alabama, they, they had an ex- incredibly explosive receiver in John Ross. They had a quarterback who was much better than people had expected at that point. I still wonder why that was such a high point of that. And then they had some dudes on defense. Like that was the dudes that were on that defense and the way they played. Like that was in my mind, that was the identity. And that was certainly what was what held up in, in that game against Alabama. Like that that defense was rugged. They were every bit they deserved to be in that game because of the way the defense played. And and the Rose Bowl team with Tui, you you had a similar you had a similar sort of hard hat style of of defense. I I think that when it comes down to it, like that's that's Washington's selling point is that it is a it is as effective a school as any in the country when it comes to getting yourself into the NFL, and it plays a fast, aggressive style of defense that is exceptionally fun for those guys to play. The 2016 defense was such a a lightning in a bottle situation because you had like you know Buda Baker was a huge recruit, yep. um, uh, Elijah Qualls was a was a huge recruit, yep. but Azim Victor three star, Keyshawn mm-hmm. Bieri a three star, Greg Gaines three star, Vita Vea three star. Although that was kind of a weird deal with his recruitment because he didn't qualify, so I don't think the evaluation was necessarily like prioritized. That dude should have been a five star all day long. Obviously, um, it's hard for people to evaluate D tackles. Like you, you will see players like that, and especially someone with. I I feel like that there is everybody recognizes the dominant defensive end. Like it doesn't to, to identify Thibodeau. It, that's that's not as hard. I think it's much harder to identify which high school defensive tackles are going to grow into someone like Vita Vea. V, Vita Vea is a monster, and he's he's a monster now in the NFL. I think that's harder harder to pinpoint. That's true. Yeah, he did play running back though. <laughs> yes, he when- did. <laughs> Which just wild. As a rule, if you're, you know, six three, three hundred and sixty pound nose tackle is <laughs> it's also yeah. your starting running back. Uh five star. No, um yeah, it, it it was it was probably decently publicized at least around here at that time, but Vita Vea, Greg Gaines, and Elijah Qualls all, all played some running back in high school. Yeah, so yeah. Um they were they were rugged. Uh do you think do you think Byron Murphy could have seen some time on that team? <laughs> You think he could have made the field? Because they redshirted him. He he would he would not have not belonged. Yeah, I don't true. think they win any more games though. That's probably true as well. That's probably true as well. Like that secondary, that secondary was was absolutely phenomenal. It was a great defense. And he was so. I mean, he could have been you know, easily could have been a power five receiver too. And they looked at him at punt returner, but like all the positions that he could have possibly played, they were loaded at corner. They had the best punt returner in school history, and they had John Ross and Dante Pettis at receiver. So, I mean, you'd be – and, like, you know, he, he was a corner. They recruited him as a corner. They wanted him as a corner. So, yeah, you weren't going to, like, flip him to offense for one year just to get him on the field and then, you know, reroute him back to, to defense or whatever. But, yeah. The one thing that's so weird, man, and it's, it's, it's continued, none of the offensive players from Washington really have worked out in the pros. Like from the from the recent from the recent like the past five to six years, you, you can even make an argument and extend it more. How many of the defensive players have turned out to be maybe even underrated? Like they've had better careers in the pros than you would expect. Not just like Corey Littleton and and sort of the but like Greg Gaines and emerging to have it. 
and and the offensive players like you've got a lot of guys that have like Pettis is he he his his NFL career was was disappointing. John Ross was someone. I mean, Cincinnati talked about moving like they tried him at DB for a little bit. It's very strange that you've seen so many for all the success the defensive players have had. It hasn't really been the same for some of the offensive players. Miles Gaskins had a great career. Like he's done really. He's 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 certainly outplayed. He wasn't even drafted, but by and large, he was se- seventh round pick. He stuck yeah, in there. The the defensive players have been much more and had had a much bigger impact at the NFL level. That surprised me. Where is because you follow the NFL much more closely than I do. Where, where is Vita Vea league wide at his position? Do you think? Oh, he's he's one of the three or four best defensive tackles in the league. Like he's not he's not Aaron Donald, but nobody's Aaron Donald. But in terms of that, like there's a very specific style of player he is, and he's one of the he's probably the best young sort of space eating nose tackle in the league. Like a guy that's big enough to to hold down the middle of a three four and and just be he's. If I was going to make a list of the top eleven defensive players in the league, he'd be on it. I think he's a monster. Um, those defensive tackle is a strange position, and then it's not as highly paid. But the guys who there are guys who are capable to play forever doing it, and I really think he might be one of those guys that plays into his thirties. But he, he's he's a phenomenal player in my mind. And Greg Gaines can't be too far behind him at this point, right? I mean, he's had... Gaines is good. Gaines is a little... He doesn't play as heavy a rotation and doesn't occupy as much. Some of his opportunities come because of the other dudes that are on that. Like, they've got they've got some speed coming off the edge with Floyd, and Donald is a monster, and he gets some of that. But he's... Gaines, Gaines is a really good rotational player. Like, Gaines, Gaines is certainly going to make some money. But, like, Vita Vea is a, is a franchise type. Yeah. defensive lineman and there's there's just not many of those guys there's three or four defensive tackles in the entire league that i think i think you would make that description about and he's one of them drew sample greg Gaines, yeah two, two guys taylor rap yeah um as long as long as rap doesn't what jalen ramsey punched him in a huddle earlier this year ramsey's kind of a chump though greg Gaines and, and drew sample both uh would have played for Boise State if Chris Peterson hadn't left. They were both committed, committed to him there. Samples, that's that's the bread and butter of Washington, right? Like if there's one thing Washington gets known for, it's just tight ends. And they got another tight end coming in this recruiting class. But that's I, I feel like Drew Samples. Drew Drew Samples carrying on the legacy. Yeah. Man, how like not that Boise State didn't also have, you know, some really good seasons under Brian Harson, but I figure from Chris Peterson's first recruiting class at Washington, Greg Gaines, Drew Sample, and Will Disley, yeah, you know, for sure would have been at Boise. Those they were committed. They were all all three of those guys were committed to Boise State. Dante Pettis's best offer was Boise State until Chris Peterson left for Washington and offered him there. So you can assume that, and plus with the family history, you could probably assume he would have wound up at Boise State too. And Jake Browning was really high on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the other quarterback Washington was looking at in that class, Brett Rippon, wound up at Boise State because Jake Browning committed the day before his visit and took his spot at Washington. So, I mean, it's possible Jake Browning, Dante Pettis, and then definitely Drew Sample, Will Disley, and Greg Gaines all end up at Boise State instead of Washington. And now, you know, how, how good could, could some of those Boise State teams have been? They would have been fantastic, but I, 
I like to look at that and say, what does that tell you about recruiting and how we evaluate it? Mm-hmm. Because those guys, none of them, when they went to Washington, was there the feeling like, oh my gosh, you get that? It was, what did we talk about earlier? It was Buda Baker, right? Like Buda Baker was the huge switch. He was the huge flip. Like that was the the sort of the the sea change moment. It was like Buda's awesome. But we don't know that the decisions we go craziest for or spotlight the most, I would say 50% of the time turn to have the most impact and 50% of the time turn out to be like, what was the linebacker, the dude that went to Alabama from, from Nevada? He was from Reno. Yeah. And everybody like that, how that, that was, that was the big recruiting question that year for Washington. Right. Like that was the one of like, oh my gosh, and it's this huge disappointment. And, and no disrespect to the the player, but he didn't he didn't turn out to have that much impact. Like that's not that's not really how that went. So I think that there are the point you made about how good would Boise State be? Like, yeah, absolutely. It also shows you that we make a lot of the decisions about how we feel about recruiting based on just the surface level of which other schools are recruiting this guy or where he's going to go because all of those guys turned out to be huge significant factors in a Pac-12 championship team as opposed to just being hey that was going to be a really good Boise State class yeah and it but it's hard because you you know you do know the historical significance of the correlation between the recruiting rankings and who competes for national championships. There's always exceptions. You know, USC and Texas have done a really good job proving that the last like 10 years or so. Um, but you need the, you, you need the big time guys. But I, th- I think, I think what Washington staff has a good grasp on is that they're not just going to jump in and get those guys right now in this class and like beat out every SEC team for them. But there are a number of guys they can find in 2023 to make them better, to help them win, and and winning will get them into more of those more of those conversations. But in the meantime, yeah, there's always Greg Gaineses out there. There's always Keyshawn Bearias. There's always Drew Samples, and um, I think they're going to take a lot of pride in finding those guys, just like Chris Peterson's staffs did. When you when you mention the recruiting rankings and the significance, how? true is that for say the teams that get ranked five to 20 in the recruiting process because i know i know that that projects who's going to be at the top and there's actually a fairly strong correlation between like where a recruit is ranked coming out of high school and in the draft draft positioning like there's it's it's not negligible it's not like it doesn't matter like the guys that are the top 100 recruits like you've got a significant proportion of them that will be among the top 100 draft prospects when they end up going into the NFL does it does it as accurately project like the teams that finish in the top 20 as it does the teams that finish in the top 5 that i don't know i'd have to look at that i would guess i mean just thinking of like 15 through 25 there's always going to be like a couple group of five teams in there that are never, mm-hmm. you know, that are never going to be in the top 25 of the, the recruiting rankings. So yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I know Washington, the team that, that made the college football playoff in 2016. Are you familiar with, with blue chip ratio? But it, the no, metric no, that Bud Elliott blue, came up with. Oh, I want to, I want to hear blue chip ratio. That sounds like something's right up my alley. It's a right. I was just going to say, it's a right up your alley. Um, I, I, I find it useful. I like it, but uh, it basically it, it's the ratio of 
so blue chips are, are defined as four and five star recruits in the 24 seven sports composite ranking. The ratio of four and five star recruits that each school has signed in its four most recent recruiting classes. Um, and it's, it's posited by Bud Elliott who created this metric that 50% is a necessity to compete for a national championship and that blue chip ratio is not good for determining who's going to win head to head, but that if your ratio is below 50%, you do not have a legitimate chance to win a national title. And every school that's won a national title going back to like, I think I think Auburn in 2010 had the lowest, and they were like just That's barely below 50. percent right? yeah. yeah. So yeah, like a, a transcendent, you know, Heisman winning right. quarterback is is going to tilt the scales a little. But um, Washington's in 2016, I think was 26 percent, 28 percent. So I mean, they were nowhere near that threshold, you know that that is is purportedly needed to win a national title. And I mean, you could say that they weren't all that close to competing for a national title, right? They lost to Alabama by 17 and Alabama wasn't even the team that, that won the national championship that year. But I mean, it just shows like how, how many of, of those non blue chip guys had to hit for them to even like get to that stage. And, you know, maybe, maybe more to your point and it's anecdotal and it's a small sample size, but their entire roster has been above 50% the 2019 season and I think also the 2020 season. And, you know, you saw some, some lacking results. So, uh, blue chip ratio. I gotta, I gotta get on this. It's a good, it's a good, it's a good way to measure, you know, who's, who's got a chance to win a national title each year. It's a, as, as Bud Elliott puts it, it's a, it's a prerequisite for winning a national championship, but it guarantees, it guarantees nothing. doesn't guarantee you'll win a single game, but if you don't have it, you're probably not going to win a national title. Well, but how many how many schools how many schools do have a chance of winning the national title? Well, I mean, like six, like when you seven, yeah, that's what I was gonna say, and that might be high, right? Yeah, like the the teams that actually have a chance, like does Notre Dame have a chance to win a national title? My answer would be no. Like we know what's going to happen because they're going to get their doors blown off once they get into a college football playoff, but. Is is that a chance? Are they a, are they a school that ends up in there with a chance? I think they were this last year. Let me. Uh, there's usually like, I want to say like, thirteen to sixteen teams who make it mm-hmm. above the fifty percent. Um, yeah, Notre Dame was at fifty five percent in twenty twenty one. Okay, I'm gonna have to do more research and and some some more put some more thought into this blue chip ratio, Christian. But to the the one the one thing that it doesn't differentiate between is a five star and a four star. You know, because uh-huh. yeah. like you can get a four star recruit who ranks 330th nationally, and they count the same as the number one player in the country in this exercise. So it's, but even like I mean, you look at you know, okay, Oregon's a 56 percent, USC's a 53 percent. That's great. They're on they're on the right side of that threshold. Alabama is at 84 percent. Yeah, George is at 80 yeah. percent. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like Alabama, 84, Georgia, 80, Ohio State, 79. And then the fourth highest team is Clemson at 67. So you can see the separation. And to your point, yeah. Does anybody outside of those top three really have it have a shot? Right. Like a legitimate. I I do. Can we use blue chip ratio to determine who stunk the most? Like who had the highest ratio that was the worst? Like Miami, Miami might be in it for this one. I'm looking at it now. 55%. Yeah. Like they had 55% blue chip ratio, and they were terrible. Right? Well, USC went 4-8. and eight. 
Oh, that's true. But they fired they they fired the guy that we all knew stunk. <laughs> yeah, in week in week two, dude. I will say that's going to be the biggest flip. Like USC has finally decided to stop handicapping themselves. They've been like the <laughs> thoroughbred that's that's given themselves more weight to carry. It's like yeah, we're gonna have the most talent in the conference or right up there at the talent, but we're gonna we're gonna be coached by someone who's an idiot and like everybody knows is is in over his head. But he's really nice. Clay Helton's sure a nice guy. Now it's going to be Lincoln Riley. Good night. <laughs> Boy, he sure has turned that roster over. Yeah. Yeah, he has. He's running around. Do you think we'll have, we'll have people talking about how he's treating the players that are there? Comes into clean house. We'll see. We'll see how well he dances. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> he's going to fit in better. He'll fit in just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um... You've been at Oklahoma. You know, people talk about the bright lights, USC, Hollywood, the attention and stuff. It's you've been at Oklahoma. You can handle all that. Very true. It's Boy, very true. Uh, the transfer, the transfer churn sure seemed to come to a a pretty abrupt halt for Washington. I feel like there was a time we were talking about, you know, gosh, when's it going to end, and who, who else are they going to lose? And seems like they're rolling into spring with. I mean. They they've got eighty four scholarships committed right now. They got they only got one opening. So, was it half? Was it half this recruiting class's transfers? Is yeah, that, is that kind of what it came down to? Yeah. Um, I think everybody's still trying to figure out how the transfer how how it's going to impact and how you're going to play. Like it seemed, my, you'd know more. My impression is that they used transfers strategically in this. Like you got an yes. opportunity, like the. The, the linebacker that's coming from Pitt, like he's clearly coming here for an opportunity. And that was someone that they're like, look, we need we need speed at middle linebacker. The, he, he's going to come in here and he he's coming here for this opportunity to play. Um, and that it's which I think is actually kind of the way I like that being a way that it works, because I think it's an opportunity for a player to pick a spot where it's going to showcase him best. Like he's going to be able to go somewhere because you can't really anticipate what an opportunity. If you have to sit out a year, it's hard to think like, okay, I'm going to go there this year. And then next year I'll be able to step into this role. Whereas right now you're like, no, that's clearly going to be a great opportunity for me. So I actually, I actually think that's, I think it's going to work out really well for Washington right now, because I think that's going to be a huge difference on their team next season. It does seem like they want to emphasize like filling in holes and mm-hmm. responding to guys leaving and, and not necessarily like, all right, you know, there, here's a, here's a traditional, you know, 25 person recruiting class a couple of years from now, once all this COVID free eligibility stuff is off the books. Um, doesn't matter who comes from high school. doesn't matter who's a transfer. Let's just put together the best possible roster we can. I don't know that they necessarily look at it that way. I think they're going to always want to build the foundation around high school recruits, but like, you know, they have a need at linebacker. They go out and get Cam Bright. Um, Junior Alexander, who never should have left the state in the first place. They should have they should have been able to sign him in twenty twenty one, but that's that's its own that's its own deal. One year at ASU, he's done. Makes total total sense for him to to come home. He lost a couple of receivers. He was a great prospect. You know a lot about him. Easy. That makes sense. Um and you know this being a transition class, I think it was probably a lot easier. They had they had a connection. Aaron, Aaron Dumas, the running back from New Mexico. Obviously, they I think they know something about attrition in that room that the people don't know yet because it doesn't make a ton of sense to add. I think he'd be their seventh scholarship running back. 
um, which is just, that's too many, you know, like that's, that's a lot of dudes to carry. So, you know, previous well, connection. Not the way they used them last year. Just well, yeah. <laughs> pu- pu- puzzlingly, puzzlingly take two guys and park them on the bench after they play for all of two weeks. Like just provide no real insight or rationale between how you rotate the opportunities <laughs> through your running backs. And then you can use all seven of them, right? Like you don't really ever explain it to anybody. There's no detectable patterns. Yeah. It just seems like it's a general grab bag of opportunities. <laughs> So they st- they do team they do team they do team awards every year. Do you know who their yeah. offensive MVP was? Well, it should be Sean McGrew. It was Sean. Is that McGrew. who it was? Yeah, it should have been. But that but that just makes it more frustrating, right? Because he didn't play at all. The it, like, it it made no sense. Like the way that they played offense last year just made no sense. Um, it was exceptionally excruciatingly dumb from from start. Not even to the finish because once. Once Jimmy was gone and Donovan was canned, then you did. But it was it made no sense. It made no sense at all. I do have one one minor piece of of news here. There has been a transfer within the team. Uh, Alumu Ale is moving from offensive line to defensive line. Was confirmed a little bit ago. Really? Is he uh, an interior guy? Oh yes. Oh yeah. yes. Uh, so he'll. What are they so he'll be. He'll take. Here? Oh, that's interesting. I always, I'm always intrigued by those. I, I find that they tend to work out not quite as frequently as you, as you hope. But I, I always love it I, when you get a guy because that, that means he's mean, right? Like that six, means six three fifty five. He's yeah. listed on the roster currently. Yeah, that means that that means they think he can move a little bit and get after things. I'm, I'm curious to see how that turns out. I that'll like be, that idea. That'll be interesting. He, he is a, uh, a really good athlete for his size. Hasn't necessarily shown up at, at left guard. Uh, you know, obviously, he got beat out by Julius Bulow coming out of camp last year. Reclaimed that starting spot by the end of the year. But, I mean, they were just kind of all over the place on the O-line anyway. But um, that's a that's a big, big body in the in the middle. You know, it, it, interesting, you know, maybe what it says about how they view their D-tackle depth right now. Because I feel like even with Taimani moving on, it seemed like they had some nice options there. But, you know, obviously they're... They're looking for for somebody who can be that that plugger and take on double teams and um, you know give their linebackers a chance to to run free and make plays. So we'll see how he takes to it. I, I'd have to have to take a, a little longer look at it to see what his defensive experience was at uh, at Fife High School, uh, Mark the, Emmert's alma mater. But <laughs> that's 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 an unnecessary reference. I don't know if we need to bring up the the good haircut that he is. The guy that I was always and this goes back a little bit. I can't remember if Bob Sapp came to Washington as a defensive lineman or if they tried to move him to defensive line. Are you, do you remember Bob Sapp? Are you familiar with him? I do. Yeah. I wasn't uh, I don't know that I was You might not have been watching alive. them, but I yeah, very familiar with who he is. Okay. So Sapp Sapp has uh, Sapp's hilarious for a number of reasons. But I, at different points it was like I they just need to move him to defensive line because he's just a monster. He can do the splits. He weighs 320 pounds. He's a character, like all of these different things. And I, from what I've heard, he was he was not a very good defensive lineman. And he should have played offensive line. And then once he got into the pros, he was not a very good pro offensive lineman either. But um, it it's like communism. It tends to work better in theory than actual practice. But I'm very excited about this 355-pound interior defensive lineman moving over from the offensive line. I'm unreasonably excited. He was uh he was the two A SPSL Mountain Division defensive lineman of the year as a junior. So Let's he was go. he was all he he was all division uh on the O line and the D line, which a lot of these a lot of these guys are. So he's 
he's uh, not completely unfamiliar to that side of the ball, so we'll we'll see how that turns out. But interesting thing to watch this spring. Um, did you see Kalen DeBoer said he's he's going to tweak the the tweet woof announcement season to season? It's not actually yeah. a, it's not actually a woof anymore. Which, by the way, was the last remaining vestige of the Sark era. Sark, yeah, was the woof. Yeah, I've I've always I don't like I don't like the Twitter signaling. I, but I'm I'm a crusty old man in that way. Like I just I just don't like it. Um, I think it's I think it's lame. I think it basically what I think it is. I think it's a bat signal for all the people that are uh, inordinately list, interested in recruiting, and it sort of underscores. Because you're coach, you sh- you're not supposed to acknowledge it, right? Like when it's just a verbal commitment or an oral commitment. Like you're not you're not supposed to be able to talk about it until they sign. But everybody like wink, wink, nod, nod. It's time for the wolf. So what's he gonna do? Is he gonna do like uh, toenails scattering on a on a hardwood floor to indicate <laughs> that something has happened? Like is it gonna be like a howl that he's gonna do? Well, it's so See, far it's a it's a gift that they worked up of like a like a mean looking husky with a rain sort of effect coming down. It's, I don't really know how to describe it. Um, can, can you do, can they do a replay of Todd Marinovich getting bludgeoned? That one, the, that one, might work. anything purple. Like I'd be okay with that. Like that seems like it, or Mario Bailey doing the Heisman pose. Like if I, that was the signal that somebody had been recruited, like I, I'd like that something to do with Napoleon Kaufman. Like the, the, I think there's some opportunities there. I just the 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 wolf, the wolf is weird. I will say I appreciate it solely because yeah, you I get might to know that you, yeah, you, I might I might be doing something else and oh the coach woofed. Okay, I I know to like I know to like pay attention here and and you know look out for a commitment. Um, or you know uh, sometimes it's not known whether like a kid who posts a commitment publicly, like had an offer or not, especially closer to signing day, like some preferred walk-ons will post their commitment announces announcements. And you're not really sure. Well, if there was no accompanying woof from the coach, you can be sure like, cause he only does it for, for scholarship guys. So in some ways it that's is, so weird, it's man. helpful for it's... our purposes, but yeah, it is. that's but a selfish weird. viewpoint. Isn't that strange? Like it's all, it's all strange. It's college football. It's weird. Yeah, all, everything fair. about it is weird. That's fair. Very, very fair point. Very fair point, Christian. Well, you and you enjoy your your sunny New York afternoon. I will. I'm gonna have. A, I'm gonna have a great time. I, mean, I think I might. I think I might work my way down downtown. We'll see. Walking your way downtown. Yeah, I think I might go down there. Maybe go to the bookstore. Could walk in Central Park. World's my oyster. You do it, man. It's overcast here, but it's not raining, so my, maybe I'll go walk the dog. Well, I hope that you do that, and I hope while you're walking the dog, there's no woof to signal that you have to run <laughs> back to your computer. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you want that. Maybe you'd like to do that. Yeah, you know, it's good to have a little work every now and then. <laughs> All right, take care, everybody.